Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 11 through 15. Romans chapter 1, verse 11 through 15. For I long to see you. Verse 11. For I long to see you so that, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Thank you, brother. I'm not sure if this is on, but we'll find out. Here we go. Okay. <clears throat> well, it's been a few weeks since we've last been together in Romans. <clears throat> I think three weeks ago, actually. We had Pastor Stan two weeks ago, and we had Pastor Gabe last week. And it is good to be uh, together with you again in Romans. And um, last time we we were really looking at the first three marks of what we called gospel service in this section from verses 8 through 15 in this first chapter of Romans. <clears throat> and we were keying in on this key phrase from verse 9 when Paul says, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And we talked about how that word for serve is a, um, a word for spiritual service. It is a religious service that a priest would perform. Um, and that is the kind of service that Paul was talking about performing to the Lord. He had been a Pharisee, as we know. He had been very zealous for the word of the Lord and for serving God as he thought. But he had a wrong motivation, didn't he? He was serving in his own strength. He was serving to attain his own righteousness through the keeping of the law. And he failed to realize he, that he had missed the whole point of service to God, which is to be in our spirit. It is to be with the whole inner man engaged because our consciences are clear from the sin that was lading, uh, putting guilt upon us, ladening us with guilt. We know that we are forgiven in Christ and that our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And praise God, we can now serve him with a clear conscience with our spirit. And so this uh, is, is exactly what Paul is meaning to, to put to us in this passage. He wants us to serve with gospel service in our spirits. And so those first three points that we looked at last week, or excuse me, three weeks ago, were these. The first was thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God. And Paul, we saw in verse 8, said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He was thankful for the work of God in the lives of these Romans because God had effectually called them. He calls them saints. And he knows that their faith is genuine because their faith speaks. He says their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. It had gone forth as a great sound goes forth and reverberates through the entire ancient world. And he says, I pray for you constantly. Verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul is teaching us a pattern of prayer that the Lord has taught us. We need to pray with persistence, with fervency, with zeal for the church, for God's people in every place. And then thirdly, we saw 
submission. Submission to God's will. Paul says in verse 10, making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. We see the wonderful humility of the Apostle Paul. He had planned, he had made many efforts, in fact, we're going to see that today, to come to them in Rome. But he had been hindered. And so he submits himself to the will of God, ultimately. He puts out the request. He prays with fervency, but he says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And so those were the first three marks of gospel service we looked at last time. Thanksgiving for others, constant prayer for the saints, submission to God's will. Today, we're going to look at one additional mark of gospel service, which is that it is always involves ministry of the word, ministry of the word. And I've got five, five, excuse me, sub points, subheadings for us this morning. And the first subheading is this ministry of the word establishes us. Ministry of the word establishes us. Let's take a look at verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. Paul says he longs to see them. That word means a great desire. He intensely craves to come and see them. And so why is Paul longing so much to see and be with the people that he's largely never met before? He didn't found this church. He's writing to this church from Corinth on his way back to Jerusalem to bring a love offering to the saints there from the region of Macedonia. Well, I think we get our answer in verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren. He calls them brethren. He knows that they're family. And so he confidently calls them <clears throat> brethren. Again, because their faith had sounded forth. He knows that their faith is genuine. And that, that faith was evidenced by an obedience to God's word. And he loves the family of God and desires to spend time with them. So I think it's worth asking ourselves at this point, brothers and sisters, what is it that we long for? What is it that we long to spend our time doing? Do we, do we enjoy time of fellowship with other believers? Do we find it refreshing or do we find it more of a burden? Um, when we come to hear the word of God in church, are we eager to hear it or are we kind of watching the clock and waiting to get out to the next thing, whatever that might be? Paul's sentiment here is not unique to Paul. Christians should long to spend time with each other. It should be a high priority. We share the same spirit. That's why. Because we have the same father. We have the same divine nature indwelling all of us. And so we're attracted to that. Do you ever find that the love of the brothers in church, brothers and sisters in church, is closer than the love of blood relations? Hmm. See, what Paul is really longing for here, I believe, yes, he's longing for fellowship with the Romans and with Christians, but ultimately he's longing for fellowship with God. He wants to fellowship with the Lord through his people because all his people are indwelt by his spirit. And so that should be our desire as well to want to hear the word of God spoken from his people, to want to experience the comforts of God through his people, the correction of God through his people, the encouragement and admonition of God through his people. And of course, we want to see the wide variety of fruit on display, those attitudes of the, of the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, kindness, if I forgot kindness. That's what we want to see in each other. And so Paul's heart is to minister to these Roman Christians. He has a gospel service that he wants to perform for them. And what is that? Well, he says that I, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Now, there have been various interpretations uh, for this and what Paul actually means here. Uh, some take it to mean that he wanted to impart to them uh, some gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the gifts that we read about in the 12th chapter of Romans or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, perhaps prophecy or tongues or uh, healing or government Mercy, one of those gifts. 
But I don't think that that can be the interpretation because we know from 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit himself is the one who distributes the gifts severally as he wills. So it's not the apostle who is giving those gifts. It's the spirit who gives the gifts. Some, some other interpreters have taken this to mean that Paul is meaning to say that I want to impart the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. And we know that the apostles had this ability of laying on hands and praying that the Lord would send the Holy Spirit. Like in Acts chapter 8 um, with uh, the apostles Peter and John. They came to the churches in Samaria. They laid their hands on them. They prayed and the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven to, to fill them. Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 19 with the Ephesian disciples. He laid their hands on them. So is that what he's saying here? Well, <clears throat> I would have to say no, because he's already writing to Romans who he calls saints, brothers in the Lord. So they're already saved. They're already spirit-filled people. He doesn't say, I'm imparting to you a spiritual gift so that you may be saved. He says, I'm imparting to you some spiritual gift so that you may be what? Established. Established. And that word means to strengthen. It means to make firm, to take something that's weak and to stiffen it, uh, to put down roots, if you will, to ground it. That's the idea here. So take as a, a first example, Romans chapter 16. At the end of Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now, this is the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Romans. After he had uh, done the first 11 chapters where he's teaching them doctrine, and then from chapters 12 to 16 where he's teaching them how to live out that doctrine, this is his doxology to the Romans. He says this, Romans 16, 25, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So what is he saying? He's telling these Romans that it's, it's God who establishes them, right? God who strengthens and grounds them. How? Through the gospel and through the preaching of Christ. And so, just so that there's no question in the mind of these Romans as to how this happens, Paul actually says the same thing six different ways in this passage. Look at what he says. To him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, preaching of Christ, revelation of the mystery, um, prophetic scriptures, commandment of everlasting God in obedience to the faith, which is the whole body of truth that God has given us in his revealed word. So in six different ways, Paul is saying it's God who establishes us through his word. In fact, God the Father, who establishes us through his word in this passage. Now take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. How is it that Christ in this passage and the Father establish us? By his word, right? By his word, by the, the word taught by the apostle. He says, stand fast and hold the traditions that you were taught. That's the word of God. Or take this third example, which many of you probably have committed to memory. Second Thessalonians, or Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God breathed. Breathed out by God. And is profitable for doctrine. For reproof. For correction. For training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the scripture, which is the word of the spirit, 
is itself useful to what? Outfit the man of God that he may be complete, lacking in nothing, able to perform every good work in the power of the Spirit. So whether it's God the Father, Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, they all establish us, strengthen us. How? Through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. So that is the idea of establishing is it's, it's this, it's really a spiritual strengthening that God does through his word. So I believe what Paul is saying here is that's the spiritual gift that he wants to impart to these Roman Christians. He wants them to be strengthened, strengthened in the spirit by the word of God. Paul wants to see these people in person so that he can open up the scriptures to them, unpack them. See, what he's written to them here in the whole letter of Romans is really a summary statement. And you could argue that every one of his epistles is a summary statement of God's truth. And so it's the business of the preacher to unpack the word of God, to show how it connects from um, one place to another within its immediate context, how it relates throughout redemptive history and how it's fulfilled possibly in multiple ways over time, how it all ultimately points to Christ. That's the business of preaching and expounding the word of God. And that's what he wants to do for them. You remember when in Acts 19, Paul was in Ephesus and he was in the school of Tyrannus, we're told. And he was reasoning daily with the disciples for two years, for two years. Now, some uh, commentators have uh, estimated that if Paul were to preach or read um, all of his letters, all of his epistles, he could do so in one afternoon. So what was he doing for the rest of the time for two years? <laughs> he was doing this. He was expounding the word of God. He was showing the disciples how everything connects. This is our lifetime of study that we're engaged in, brothers and sisters. Think of uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. Jesus, we're told, was walking with his disciples. And then the wonderfully in verse 27 of chapter 24, Luke gives this account. And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he, referring to Jesus, expounded to them, the disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That must have been an amazing sermon to hear, right? Can you imagine? So this is the business of Pastor teachers, elders is another word for pastor teachers, to labor in. We're told, um, uh, Paul tells Timothy this very thing. He says, well, actually, let me back up. There's two things that the, the preacher, the pastor teacher is to labor in in scripture. One is prayer. And the second is the ministry of the word. That's from Acts chapter six. Those are the two things that he needs to be most concerned about. And as regards ministry of the word, listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Labor, literally working to the point of exhaustion and exhausting oneself in two areas. The word that means learning what the word is and what it has to say and doctrine. And the idea there is instructing, teaching others what you've learned. So clearly pastors must be, must be spiritually strengthened themselves, fed by the word of God, ministered to by the, the word and the spirit in order to have anything to minister to anyone else. And that's also true for all of us as well. So this is God's model for the church. He has appointed officers, gifted men who have been called in the scriptures, apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers, also called elders, bishops. It's all the same person for this work of equipping the saints. Ephesians chapter four, turn to Ephesians chapter four. Apologize if I'm a little sniffly today. I'm still getting over a cold from last week. Okay, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. 
And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So how is it that the church officers equip the body and they build them up? Well, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the unity of the faith, that's the answer. The faith is, again, that whole body of truth that God has committed to us, entrusted to us in his revealed word. Jude calls it the faith once delivered to all the saints. And God's will is that we each should have a full understanding, that we should come to a full understanding of this body of truth, which gives us knowledge of God through the Son, Jesus Christ. And this, this is exactly what equips us. This is what builds us up. This is what strengthens and stiffens us in our spiritual life to become this quote-unquote perfect man, this one who is lacking nothing in faith which, by the way, is a lifelong endeavor. It will never happen perfectly in this life. But that shouldn't diminish our zeal for trying to attain it. There is a faithfulness, excuse me, a fullness of Christ that we're meant to know and fill up and embrace. So why is it important that the church be built up and strengthened in the faith? Look at verse 12. For the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. That means, edify means to build up, to build up the church, to strengthen the church. So this is the idea that we looked at at the beginning. God whom I serve in my spirit. This work of ministry is a spiritual priestly service that's required of every Christian. Brothers and sisters, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Always. This is not reserved just for pastors. This is reserved for everybody in the body of Christ. We all have gifts that we are to use to build up the body. There's verbal gifts like prophecy, knowledge, wisdom, teaching, exhortation. There's nonverbal or serving gifts, which are kind of behind the scenes, if you will. Gifts like leadership, helps, giving, mercy, faith, discernment. So the first reason it's important the church be strengthened is this, to build up the body of Christ that we would corporately, altogether, and individually image Christ to the world. And that's what brings him glory. That's why he's having us do this. This is the ministry of the word, ultimately, is to conform us to the image of Christ. We're talking about sanctification, that we may bring him glory. And the second reason is given us in verse 14 of Ephesians 4, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Brothers and sisters, there are winds of doctrine that are false, that blow all around us every single day. And the only way that you have a chance of staying upright, standing firm, is that you be grounded in the word of God that you know the truth so well that you're able to identify the error when you hear it. Because error abounds. And there's not many who speak the truth. Don't take my word for it. We are to be like the Bereans, right? We're to test everything that you hear coming from this pulpit, from the teaching ministry of this church, from each other. Test it against your own reading and praying through the scriptures. Verse 15 of Ephesians 4, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So is it just the church officers that are speaking the truth? No, all of us are to speak the truth in love till we all come to the unity of the faith. There's a full body of truth that we are to know in order to speak it to each other. There's a great expression that sometimes people will use. I don't know where it originated from, but it's this idea of washing each other in the water of the word of God. Bathing each other. That's This is what we are to be doing constantly. Bringing the word of God to bear in each other's lives for encouragement, for admonition, for correction. 
all for the glory of the Lord, that we would be built up in love. That's what he means when he says every part does its share. Right? From whom, referring back to Christ, who is the head, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So what he's saying is the head, Christ, is the source of all life in the body of Christ, right? And that life comes down and fills every member of the body so that the members can minister to one another. Our life, our power comes from the head, from Christ. Think about this. When we eat food, what happens in the body? The body absorbs that food. It takes those nutrients and it delivers them to the trillions of cells that we have in our body so that we can live and we can function and we can thrive. Every member of the body plays a part to the same end, which is that the body would be preserved in health. Think about what happens when the body's sick. When the body's sick, there's a mobilized response within the body, an army, if you will, of good cells that come to attack the invaders, whoever they might be, bacteria, viruses, parasites, you name it. Kill them and eliminate them from the body. If the body's hurt, it mobilizes to heal itself. That's why we get scabs when we cut ourselves, right? So this is, my point is, this is the gospel service that we are to be engaged in. It's an action, brothers and sisters, and it's mediated through the word by bringing the word to bear in each other's lives. This is the priestly service of the body of Christ, and it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial by each member of the body for each member of the body. Church is not just coming to hear the pastor talk on a Sunday morning. That's part of it. But that's not church in its totality. We all are church and we all have a function to play in the body of Christ, building up itself in love. You may remember from the corporate reading this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul said this, Therefore, comfort each other and edify, that means build up, one another, just as you also are doing. That's written to the church. So we all have this responsibility to minister the word to each other. In the hymn that we sang just a little while ago, In the Cross Alone I Glory, in one of the verses, the writer says, In the cross alone I glory, holding fast the word of life, or holding forth the word of life. Toiling not in vain, but being poured out as a sacrifice. Right? So our efforts are not in vain. When we hold forth the word of life to each other, it's sacrificial and we do it in love for Christ and for each other because we care about his body. Really, there's nothing more that we should care about in this world than the body of Christ, right? We are to love God supremely and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the great commandment and the second one. That's just like the first. So back to Romans chapter one, verse 11. <clears throat> For I long to see you that I that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. Another good rendering of that might be this. For I long to see you and give you some grace of the spirit so that you would be strengthened. When Paul talks about establishing the Romans, he's not talking about their justification, their conversion to Christ. He's talking about sanctification, becoming like Christ. And the word is the agency through which that change is effected. So the ministry of the word, firstly, establishes us. The second subheading is this. The ministry of the word encourages us. It encourages us. Look at verse 12. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul, in effect, is saying this. Lest there be any misunderstanding, while I desire to impart a spiritual gift to you, please understand that this is a blessing for me. This is an encouragement to my soul, Paul says. And you see the humility, right, in Paul. He's not just blessing them with spiritual insight as one who speaks down to them and, and says, here's what you need to learn. He says, I want you to know these things, and it gives me great joy 
a great joy that you are receiving them and being changed by them, that your faith is sounding forth in response to the word. You are being obedient to the word. Seeing the church strengthen is what blessed Paul's heart. And it should bless our hearts. Um, I've heard pastors say this over the years, and I'm fairly new to this role, so I, I don't have a lot of experience in this, but I believe it's true. These pastors would say that there is no greater privilege for a pastor than to see the saints growing in grace and knowledge, to see spiritual growth in the body of Christ. It's a joy, not because the pastors are doing something great. They're just being faithful servants in heralding the word where the power is to build everybody up. Especially so that the people can face the trials that we all must face, right? We, we have a life of suffering because we follow the road of Christ who suffered. None of us is exempt from that. And so we need this spiritual grounding, again, so that we can minister to each other, so that we can identify error when it comes, and so that we can persevere to the end in the face of much adversity, brothers and sisters. So those who receive the ministry of the word, they're blessed. That's true. But so is the one who ministers the word. So is the one who ministers. I would call your attention to the order that Paul gives for this gospel service in ministering the word. Notice first it gives. Paul says, I want to impart something to you. And then it receives that I may be encouraged. That's the principle of the Lord himself when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive, right? Some of your translations may read comforted in the place of encouraged. That's correct. The Greek word there means to comfort jointly or mutually comfort. And so how is Paul comforted? Well, he says, by the mutual faith, both of you and me. In other words, we believe the same things. We're of the same mind. We acknowledge and serve the same Lord and Savior who died for our sins. We have a mutual faith. We hold to the same body of truth. Now, we may not agree on every single point of this body of truth, right? There are areas um, that we would call secondary issues, maybe like eschatology, right? Um, we may not all agree on how things are going to go down in the end. That's okay. We have grace for each other in those things, but we all agree on the essentials, the non-negotiables, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ. We have to be absolutely on the same page with regard to those things. So Paul knows that the Romans are going to warm his heart when he comes to minister to them in person. And he craves that. He longs to see them for that reason. He wants to hear of their experiences of grace from the Lord, how the Lord's been working in their lives. So let me ask you another question, brothers and sisters. What's the first thing that you look for in a person? In other words, what do you find that's attractive in somebody else? I'm not talking about the physical qualities that might attract opposites, but <clears throat> do you look for things like a common ethnicity do you look for things like same level of education or maybe same interests, same hobbies, same sense of fashion? Or are you looking for the Holy Spirit in that person's life? Are you looking for the faith once delivered to the saints, that they can speak the truth of God and encourage you and correct you as needed? Do we enjoy the company of all Christians beloved, or just those who are most like us? Let me put it this way. If you could spend your time with anybody, let's say the most humble Christian who doesn't necessarily have a lot to offer and by way of experience, or the most accomplished non-Christian, most accomplished person you could think of, name, name them, whoever that, that might be for you, who would you be drawn to spend your time with? See, these are probing questions because they tell us something about ourselves. They tell us something about our spiritual condition, about our priorities, where our love is. Do we love Christ and do we love to see him in others? Um, I remember John MacArthur, pastor, who was um, relating the story of enjoying fellowship with a dear lady in his church. 
And the lady was just worried about bothering Dr. MacArthur with all her questions. She was kind of, you know, very um, self-abasing. Oh, Dr. MacArthur, you probably don't want to hear that or you wouldn't be interested in that. And he was like, dear sister, I do want to hear these things. I want to hear about your experience of grace from the Lord. It encouraged his soul. You know, everybody thinks that he's this big celebrity. He doesn't want to be treated like a celebrity. He wants to be with the people. He wants to hear what the Lord is doing in their lives. What I find refreshing about Paul's humility is here we have the great apostle Paul who is very clearly an amazing man. He was very gifted, very intelligent, um, powerful in the spirit, and yet he's one with all other Christians. He wants to be one with all other Christians. He's able to get encouragement and comfort even from the most inexperienced Christian, from a brand new convert. He wants to spend time with them. Why? Because it's the spirit of God who's at work in that person. And that's what he's interested in. Paul says this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? See, everything that we have is by grace. Every gifting that we have is a gift of God. So we have no reason to boast in any of these things. Um, thinking of the, the papal system, the Roman Catholic system, um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was commenting on this text, and he, he was talking about how, you know, in the Roman Catholic system, and certainly in the Orthodox system as well, the Eastern system, they have popes, they have archbishops, they have this clear hierarchy of um, holy men in the church, <clears throat> and how they are perceived as so untouchable. They're the ones who always come to bless others, but you never really see them receiving encouragement and blessing themselves. That is not Christianity, brothers and sisters. That is a holdover from the Roman Empire and from Constantine that's come into the church. Christian life is shared mutual experience in the faith. That's what it should be. That's what we should all crave and desire. Here's the principle, Matthew 20, 25. Jesus said it this way. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Or take the apostle Peter who said it this way. The elders who are among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. See, the great apostle Peter he just viewed himself as a fellow elder with all the other elders that he was writing to in this dispersion. These pilgrims, he puts himself on an equal footing with them. He calls himself a, a partaker of the glory. He too has been invited into this great fellowship. He's been saved just like they have. He doesn't lord his position over anyone. And he encourages the elders not to do that either, but to lead how? By example. To lead as a servant, as an under-shepherd to the great chief shepherd. I love how Paul says it to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, Paul, Silvanius, Timothy. Um, actually, <laughs> I didn't write down the full quote there. But he longed to be with the Thessalonians. All of them did. Paul, Silvanius, Timothy. And he says this, to impart not only the gospel to them, which is the word of God, but our own lives because you had become dear to us. So there's the idea again. He craved not just that they, that, 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 excuse me, that they would have the right theology, but that they would have fellowship with each other, that they would be in unity with each other. 
So the ministry of the word encourages us and it encourages both the one ministering and the one being ministered to. Subheading number three is this, the ministry of the word sometimes involves hindrance, hindrances, blockers. Take a look at verse 13. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So Paul's using a what we would call a double negative here. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. In other words, I do want you to be aware. I want you to take special note of this, that I often plan to come to you, often, but was hindered until now. He had planned several times to make a trip to Rome to be with these Romans. He had heard of their faith. Again, their obedience had become known to all. He was thankful to God for their faith that it sounded forth. He was praying earnestly and persistently for them. He was yielded to the will of God for the right timing to come and see them, but he was hindered. And he was hindered not just once, but several times. So the question is, what was hindering Paul? Well, turn to chapter 15 of Romans. We get some insight there, Romans chapter 15. And let's start at verse 14. <clears throat> Romans 15, 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now no longer having a place in these parts and having a, a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have become partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Okay, so a couple of things there he mentions that probably give us good insight as to why he was hindered. First, verse 19, he was intent on fully preaching the gospel. In that whole region from Jerusalem roundabout to Illyricum, which commentators estimate is somewhere around 14 or 1500 miles worth of land territory that he was covering. It's a big area. And what does he say? That he was going to preach, his aim was to preach in places where Christ had never been preached before. He was an evangelist in this sense. And so his delay was because as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul is trying to ensure that the gospel is fully preached in every area before he moves on. And that's causing delay. He wasn't going to skip areas before he made his way west to Rome. And then the second thing is verses 25 to 28, where he says, look, I'm headed back to Jerusalem. I have this love offering that I need to deliver to the saints there before I can do anything else. So there's a couple of reasons why he was delayed. He was hindered, clearly. Now, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says something interesting to them. He says that he had a great desire to see them, 
but that time and time again, Satan hindered him and them, the apostles. So sometimes Satan can hinder gospel service. And in Acts 16, when Paul, Silas, and Timothy were traveling through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, <clears throat> we're told that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. The Holy Spirit himself was forbidding them. He was a hindrance. So rather than continuing north into the region of Galatia, they actually turned south. They went down to Troas. And you remember what happened there? Paul had a dream, a vision at night of a man from Macedonia who was pleading with him, come down and help us. And so he perceived it was the Lord's will that they should do that. And he did. So sometimes the Holy Spirit himself can hinder gospel service. See, there's nothing wrong with planning in the Christian life. In fact, planning is a good thing. Paul planned many times these ministry travels deliberately and often. But he recognized that gospel service sometimes has hindrances. So we should expect that too, brothers and sisters. It might be sickness that prevents us from coming together. That's okay. We can still pray fervently and receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the word. It might be the right thing that we want to do, but it might be the wrong time in God's perfect timing. That's okay. Pray that the Lord will avail you of that opportunity at the right time. See, the Lord has the advantage of seeing the beginning from the end. Uh, this analogy stuck with me of um, those who watch a parade. <clears throat> if you're watching a parade behind a fence looking through a knothole, you're only seeing what's coming in front of you at any given point in time, right? But the Lord is... He's above looking down. He sees the beginning from the end. So we commit ourselves to him and to his perfect sovereign timing. Okay, so sometimes ministry has hindrances. The fourth is this, fourth subheading. Ministry of the word yields fruit. Praise the Lord. It yields fruit. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, Romans 1, verse 13, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. What did Paul have in mind with this fruit idea? What was this fruit that he wanted? Well, I think you could certainly say he wanted to experience the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of these Romans. We talked about that. What about spiritual growth? Spiritual growth. Listen to Colossians 1, 9, and 10. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Spiritual growth is fruit. It's fruit. And I don't think that we can exclude fruit in the sense of conversions to Christ either. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 2, If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. See, the Corinthian church, the people, were the seal. They were the evidence, the proof, the fruit that Paul had a genuine apostleship. He was speaking the word and power to them. They, by God's grace, responded. And that was fruit that abounded to his account. He says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? So Paul viewed the Thessalonians as his crown, his reward, his treasure, I believe the totality of the harvest for Paul in his ministry was tremendous. Tremendous by God's grace. And yet Paul here shows his modesty in Romans 1.13. That I might have some fruit, he says, some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, I know that the ministry of the word has yielded fruit here at Creekside too. Many of us have not been here at Creekside very long, <clears throat> but it's clear that God is doing a work of grace here. 
I see the saints are hungry for the word of God. I see that the saints enjoy spending time with each other. We enjoy each other's company. Oftentimes people won't leave after service until hunger overtakes them and they're hangry, combination of angry and hungry, hangry. They have to go. But it's a good thing, right? I mean, we, we want to spend time with each other for this reason. There's a ministry of the word and the spirit happening here. The last subheading this morning is number five, which is this. The ministry of the word is a debt of love. The ministry of the word is a debt of love. Verse 14, I am debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So Paul is continuing his thought from verse 13, where he left off saying, just as among the other Gentiles. And then here in verse 14, he classifies these Gentiles now into two groups of people. The Greeks and the barbarians. Who were the Greeks? The Greeks were the sophisticated. They were the cultured. They were the learned. They were the cream of the crop, if you will. If you will. <clears throat> In contrast to the barbarians, who were the unlearned, uncultured, the rough people, right? In fact, the Greek word for barbarian is varvaros, and they, they named it that because when the barbarians would speak, it sounded like var, 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 var to them. Just absolute gibberish. So they called them barbarians. Okay, so why is Paul a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians? Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, this is Romans chapter 13, which is Paul's instruction to the Romans on submitting to government as we submit unto the Lord. And so what he's saying here is don't owe anything to anyone. Pay your dues, whether it's taxes, pay your taxes. If it's custom, pay your customs. Fear, pay fear. Respect, tribute, honor, pay those things as they're owed. Don't owe anyone anything except this. Owe love. That's the one thing that we must continually pay. That will never pay down to zero. We always owe love. Why? Romans 13, 10. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the great commandment that God wants us to fulfill. Loving our neighbor as ourself. It's a debt of love that we owe. So Paul's gospel service, his ministry to the Romans, and to every other Gentile, meaning every other nation of the world, is a debt of love. An indiscriminate love that goes out to the cultured and it goes out to the uncultured. It goes out to the wise, it goes out to the unwise by worldly standards. We all also ought not to show partiality, brothers and sisters. And I love that this comes from Paul, right? Paul, who was a Pharisee, Paul, who was a hypocrite and who only spent time with those who were just like him, cultured and educated and of the same tribe and stock, same education. And Paul, the same Paul, converted, now says there is neither Jew nor Greek, <laughs> Greek nor barbarian, slave nor free, Male nor female, you are all one in Jesus Christ. So gospel service is a debt of love. And we should always be ready to pay it. Verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. As much as is in me. I think this is the same idea as in my spirit. In other words, I'm ready. I'm going to give this my all. I'm totally engaged and ready to preach the gospel. Paul, remember, he's surrounded by danger, right? Every city that he goes into, there's unbelieving Jews who want to trap him, who want to arrest him, who want to kill him. That's Paul's day-to-day -day life. And yet, he knows the Lord is his deliverer. He knows that the Lord is his shepherd, so that as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he doesn't need to fear any evil because God is with him. 
strengthening him, comforting him, that the Lord is able to set out a table, a banquet table, in the presence of his enemies. And Paul can sit down and enjoy, relax, in the presence of enemies. How is this possible? Because of the Spirit of God comforting him. And because of these people who were comforting him, because they've acknowledged and received the truth. Hmm. We need to be ready to preach the gospel, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> As Paul said to Timothy, in season and out of season. That means all the time. There's no other category apart from in season and out of season. <laughs> or think about when Peter said, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Always be ready to engage people with the gospel. So in closing, I would say this, loved ones, we all have a part to play in gospel service and God's great redemptive plan, which he has brought about and is bringing about through ordinary Christians, ordinary people, who are endued with, empowered with extraordinary strength from the Lord. We have his word. We have his spirit. Let us avail ourselves of it. And let us pray that God will bless it mightily here in our congregation at Creekside and in every other gospel preaching church in this valley. May we be those who follow the biblical pattern that Paul has laid out here for us as we seek to serve in the gospel, knowing that it can establish us, knowing that it encourages both the minister and the one ministered, knowing that sometimes it involves hindrances, knowing that it yields fruit and is a debt of love that we owe every person that we should always be willing to pay. Lord, may you add your blessing to your word. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time of ministry in your word. Lord, thank you for your dear saints whom you've given ears to hear, hearts to understand, eyes to see the truth that you have revealed through your word and through your servants. Lord, may we prize this word above all things. May we treasure you and your people your body, the bride, Christ and his body. Father, may we have the right priorities and realize what we're doing, how, how we're spending our time. Lord, may we redeem the time, as Paul tells us, because the days are evil. Lord, we only have a finite and a limited amount of time. In the grand scope of history, we are like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. We're like a, a flower or grass that is beautiful one day and withered the next. Father, what a great privilege you've given all of us to be engaged in this gospel service. May we do it with our spirit, with our inner person, totally engaged, pouring ourselves out sacrificially for others, using the means, the, the methodology that you have given us not our own cleverness, not our own ideas of how we can affect change apart from your word. But Lord, use the tools you've given us. Steep ourselves in the truth. Hear the truth. Love the truth. Obey the truth. Father, forgive us for we have sinned. Lord, we, we are like sheep who have gone our own way. But we thank you that you've given us shepherds. And that we have a great shepherd, all of us, who loves us, who guides us, who cares for us on a daily basis, who calls us to himself. And Lord, may we respond by coming to him, drawing near, for this is worship. Lord, may we think of our whole lives in this sense. Coram Deo, we live before the face of God. May we serve you in your strength, for your glory. Bless your people, Father. Thank you for this time this morning, and thank you for every church in this valley proclaiming your word. You are at work, Father, 
you have thousands reserved for yourself who will not bow the knee to idolatry, but who serve you in, in their spirits. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you've worked us, worked in our hearts, that you've not passed us by. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.